This is an ABC podcast. What's going on? What is this? Who is this? What are they doing on the radio at the moment? This is all too complicated. Well, I have some information that might help. Um, this is the minefield, and that is surprising for so many ways, uh, for so many reasons, I should say. That that's, wasn't the minefield theme. It is, though, henceforth. That's the new theme. And it's the first time I've heard it. Scott has been beavering away. DJ Aristotle has been on his decks, and this is what he's come up with, and I hope you enjoy it. I think it's good. I think it's there's a little bit of tension in it. Creeps a little bit. I think there's something going on there. Scott will no doubt fill us in on um, all the inspiration for it. Um, why is this on now? Well, everything has changed in Minefield Land. The show is in a different time on the radio uh, and it goes for a different length and Scott's going to have to explain that because he's been to the meetings and I haven't. Well, Lee Daly is my name uh, as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. That has not changed. Uh, Scott Stevens is my co-host. That has not changed, but a lot else has. How are you, Scott? I'm very well, Waleed. And you see, things are so different now in 2021 than they were in 2020. So why shouldn't the minefield change too? Actually, can I just, can we start there about how little has changed yeah. <laughs> since last year? Well, I mean, this really is this kind of one great gray continuity. It's quite extraordinary. Can I, this is not what we're talking about today, no. but this is the first time we've reconvened in quite a while, of course. Mm. And Related to that is something that I've noticed, and that is that almost nobody that I work with or have spoken to about this feels like they've had a break, mm. even though they have literally just had a break in some cases. That characteristic kind of post-summer refreshed, yeah. wide-eyed look yeah, yeah, that not, greets you when you there. come into work. Yeah, yeah. and, and in, I, I'm definitely in that camp. I don't feel like I've had a yep. break at all, but I literally had a holiday. Like I can show you an itinerary that says, here is a holiday. <laughs> But it, I don't feel that at all. And I wonder if the continuity that you've spoken about there is the reason. I don't have a good explanation, but I wonder if that's the mm. reason. Look, I, I do think a lot of it. I mean, we have this unnatural and I think unhelpful and fundamentally unhealthy faith in calendars, don't we? Yes. I mean, calendars are the great fiction that govern our lives. And we have this irrational hope that when the date clicks over, that something fundamental is going to change as the result. And I think, I mean, you know, we've done shows about this in the past. I think what this probably reflects is a fundamentally corrupted concept of hope that we live with in the first place. Oh, God. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, look, I, I think hope is this great, wonderful thing, but I think we don't understand what it is, and we don't understand hope's relationship to despair. And because we don't understand hope's relationship to, dis I mean, inherent relationship to despair, then we don't understand the role of moral agency that is the heart at the heart of any concept of hope. And so because of that, we just assume that these great providential or fatalistic forces are going to kind of come in behind us and bear us along with it, which is also not what we're talking about today. No, but, but know, I like I that three a... and a half minutes into our year, you're already <laughs> working your way towards a Batman well, reference because there's a lot well, of Christopher well, Nolan in what you... There is a lot of Christopher Nolan. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, one of the reasons we can be so profligate with <laughs> Hang on. Don't sell it like that, please. <laughs> no, no, no. We can afford to waste time in a way that we never could before. Uh, one of the reasons is, in addition to a new time slot on Thursdays at 2 o'clock and our usual slot on Sundays at 10 o'clock, we also have a new theme, which you just heard. And by the way, let me just send out a challenge. 
to our listeners. There are a whole lot of tributaries, a whole lot of rivulets that have flowed in to the inspiration behind that theme. We were asked for a number of source or inspiration songs to uh, craft for someone named uh, a very, very fine gentleman, Russell Stapleton. Hats off to him for coming up with our wonderful theme uh, to help him in his task of constructing how Minefield would sound this year. Mm. I'm wondering if some of our avid listeners can do a bit of audio archaeology. Can you pick up... We might sort of we do a little audio striptease in future, shall we? Oh, wow. And reveal reveal where some of the things came from. I, I think it's pretty obvious. I think it's pretty obvious where some of the musical influences lie. But I'd be really interested if, if other people can pick up some of those uh, influences. Uh, well, but the other Scott great sounds well-rested. Audio yeah, strip-teases. Yeah. That's the first phrase of the Well, food, sorry. Yeah. The first thing that's obvious from the bass line. Right is there's a whole lot of Pearl Jam in there. You gave it away. You didn't even give people a chance. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. But but people who've listened to for the last six months would know that there's going to be Pearl Jam no, in there. No, they'd say but that. They'd other... say Leonard Cohen. They'd say Bob Dylan. Nah, and they nah, wouldn't nah, say Pink none of Floyd because, well, they doesn't get a say. That's the... Well, there is a little bit of Pink Floyd in there. Also, maybe a little bit of Led Zeppelin. But oh, that's maybe... Gee, yeah. Anyway, anyway, the other reason, of course, that the minefield is changing a bit this year, for those who have been listening for... My gosh. I mean, how long were we doing it? Well, eight, four, nearly five years? No, we found I that... reckon this is year seven. Well, no, this is year seven, but for the first two years, we were very well disciplined. All oh, right. Yes, yes. We stuck more or less to the 25 allocated minutes that we had on air. But then we often found ourselves and we kept sort of talking between us and often talking with our guests after the recording stopped. And I can't remember which show it was, but there was one show that we did, and I thought that the best aspects of the conversation were the conversation that we had after the microphones, if you like, quote unquote, turned off. And so we released that additional bit of conversation as a podcast extra. And then that whole thing just kind of snowballed. So for the better part of, I think, four and a half years now, we've been doing a 25-minute radio portion, roughly a 50-minute podcast version that goes out on our international feed. And so I don't know if it's to punish us. I don't know if it's to reward us. I don't know if it's just to give in to our lack of discipline, but RN decided that just to give us basically double the time that we had before on radio. So now the version that you listen to in your podcast stream will also be the version that everybody listens to on radio. So finally, the entire nation can be having the same conversation surrounding the minefield mm. instead of just those who listened to the podcast and those who didn't. Because the entire nation is having a conversation about the About minefield. the minefield. Of course uh, yes. they are. Of I course like, they I are. I like the presupposition in what you, you do. Okay. Say. <laughs> um, so yeah, that neatly lays it out. Uh, and we'll see how we go, basically. Uh, I, I imagine there will be evolutions in the way we a- attack the whole yeah, show as a result of that. We just don't know what they are now because we don't know how this is going to work. So everybody Good luck, um, and let's see how we get on. Speaking of which, we should get on, and this is um, – I, I always quite like this show in the year, the first show back, because I think it's fair to say that not every week, but many weeks, we try to reflect something that is really timely and topical, so something that's just happened in that week yeah. uh, or perhaps in the preceding week, but not too much before that. Um, mm. And we then we try to go as big picture as we can on that thing. But the first show back of the new year – we kind of have everything that happened over the Australian summer hmm. to 
pick out and figure out what was the abiding theme. And there's just been so many things happen, Scott. I mean, we had the, the United States has been the focus of just about everything, mm-hmm. particularly after the January 6th Capitol. Uh, what, what are we calling it? Are we calling it Riots, a riot or an insurrection or whatever? Oh, well, I'm not sure about insurrection. I do think it was an anti-democratic mob or an anti-democratic riot. Oh, to my mind, so that's probably would, technically speaking. They would say they were being democratic. I know they would, but that's why they're mistaken. Yeah, they might be mistaken. But if you call it anti-democratic, are you not attributing a motivation to them that isn't there? No, no. I think, I think anti-democratic can be described as a matter of objective, can, can be used as a matter of objective description. Uh, or, or you can even refer to it as an anti-pluralistic riot. Oh, that's too but, that, that's too vague for what they were. Yeah, I know. They were protesting Which is why the result I think of an election. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, it's not the topic we're talking about today. But it's one of the things. It's not that quite the topic. Not quite. No, it sort of is, isn't it? Right. Um, yeah. There was that. There was all the fallout from that. It, we are doing this in the aftermath of Australia Day, which always triggers a range of debates. Yeah. Uh, well, a range, perhaps even the same debates mm-hmm. uh, about the date on which Australia Day should properly fall. Amidst all that, the elevation of Margaret Court to the Companion of the Order of Australia, which triggered a whole other mm. debate about our, our honours system. Which uh, is also the same debate we've been having for the last four years. I mean, can, can I just say how glad I am that we're going to air now instead of a couple of days ago? Really? Um, yeah, I really am. Because there's so many of these issues, they really are perennials, which tells me that both the debate is going nowhere, but also most likely we're not using the right tools in the debate. We so, haven't got the appropriate language to the debate. I think right. that's broadly true, but I do think it's changing slightly. I think, I think they're sort be. of incremental. Anyway, we're not talking about that either because we've, no, we're not. we've no, scanned. We're not. <laughs> if we were doing a show just for this week, we probably would be. I think we should mm. be honest about that. But scanning everything that happened between, when did we go off air? December, something? Uh, middle, of, middle of December, two weeks before Christmas. Can I also say, Waleed, uh, just on the theme of how little has changed since 2020, COVID-19. Is wreaking havoc in the US, the UK, despite so much of the irrational hope, I think, that accompanied the announcement of various vaccines. So I think, I mean, there's so many things here that have just fundamentally not changed, and I think revealed a deeper underlying weakness that attends to so much of what we get on with in normal democratic life. Um, These are all things that could have been very good fodder for the conversation. Well, and the outbreaks that we had in Australia that were minimal, but nonetheless caused all kind of border havoc, everything. For six days, Queensland was the COVID centre, the COVID (laughs) capital of Australia, which is ridiculous. Given my 2020, guess where I was at that time (laughs) in Queensland. Excellent. But from that buffet, we've chosen a particular dish uh, that we think... I think we agreed this was the most important single event in the way that mm. it might sound into the future as far as our democratic life is concerned. Yeah, is that a fair way of summarising it? Yep. I think to say that it's probably the most consequential thing that happened is the best description. Okay. Go on then. Mm. Which is just another way of saying what you just said, <laughs> which is probably the most important thing in terms of its ongoing yeah. effect. But hang on, for once, you used more words than I did. That's true. That is yeah, true. which is nuts. Who says that nothing's changed in the year? Yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to tell us what it is? Yeah. So shortly after the January 6th riots, you see, this is partly about that. Uh, Facebook took an extraordinary decision to temporarily, or I think the right wording was to indefinitely suspend 
uh, former President Donald Trump's use of its platform. The day following, Twitter took the really remarkable step of permanently suspending the president's, the former president's use of its platform, being able to reach out to his 88 million, note please, 88 million followers. Um, a number of other social media platforms have followed suit. The reason that was given was the risk of the likelihood of further incitement of violence. Um, there's a whole lot about this, which is really really remarkable, not least because so much pressure has been placed on these social media platforms and the companies behind them for years now to take seriously the propagation of hate speech, of forms of anti-democratic mobilization that take place on the platforms, not just in the US, but in other places, not least the Philippines. Uh, for years now, these platforms have been urged by political theorists, by lawmakers, by concerned citizens, by ethicists to take seriously the kind of communications taking place on their platform. And instead of, and it seems like that there was a particular kind of uh, relaxed set of grudging rules that particularly surrounded Donald Trump. Uh, things that would not have been permitted from other people, I think, were permitted in his instance. I think there are good re well, there are understandable, or there are at least justifiable reasons for that, and we might want to get Sorry, into some what, what of those sort of reasons. Things? Well, the fact, for instance, that political speech does exist in a category of its own uh, among the various speeches that are available. I think the fact that the idea that the speech of the President of the United States should in some way be curtailed or be censored by a private company, that is... I mean, that itself is unprecedented. There is, there is quite literally no precedent well, that, for I don't that. Think, I don't think that's true, actually. I think it happens uh, every day when a newspaper makes a decision not to publish something that a leader said. Uh, yes, but that is an editorial decision, which doesn't mean that that particular figure can't communicate otherwise through other media. But same, for same the president's this. primary megaphone, its pri his primary mode of communication, um, Jedediah Purdy, who we've had on the show before, has referred, I think, beautifully to the president's all-hour social media feed like the oracular communiques of a deranged minor god. I think that's the way that Trump's voice, his kind of unmediated voice almost, has been directly okay. so, haunting our every moment. Isn't so, that lovely? So that sounds unprecedented. <laughs> I think that might be the thing. But sorry, but you've, jumped, think, you've jumped ahead to the theoretical aspect of the question. You, I'm going back to the point you made where you said okay. that Trump was given a leeway that other people weren't. Uh, what did he say that other people wouldn't have been allowed to say? Uh, do we have time for this? Yeah, I don't know that it's true. Um, it's pretty hard uh, to get banned from Twitter. Like the, the people yes. I know, well, like, yeah. I mean, look, you, you probably follow this closer than I do, but the people I think of who've been banned from Twitter are very, very extreme. Hmm. And I don't know that Trump quite got to their level. And I can think of other people who would say the kinds of things Trump would say all the time and they're all over Twitter. Yeah. Um, but I think the fact that he reached the level, especially in the aftermath of the November presidential election, reached the level not only of doing what he has been doing persistently uh, throughout his presidency, which is namely making certain elements of fact virtually indistinguishable from yeah. overt falsehood, promoting conspiracy theories. And I think doing things not just in presidential tone, but also in overt rhetoric uh, that is 
quite, uh, I would go beyond inappropriate when it's mixed, when that get, gets mixed with the inherent power uh, that attends to that particular office. Um, the extent to which forms of communication then give a degree of license to the, to the commission of forms of violence, uh, even forms of vigilantism. In other words, a kind of presidential diktat suspends the usual rules of play and the usual laws that govern uh, democratic life. So I think that's probably right. But I then think... the fact that it tipped over overtly, I think, into a form of incitement, let's now go do this. That and, and, and the fact, and I think there are other practical matters, though, that are also surrounding this, which I'm really looking forward to fleshing out okay, with you. Sure. I, in other words, I, I don't think Facebook and Twitter would have done what they did if Trump did what he did in, say, October last year. I don't think they would have suspended his account in the middle of a Democratic Yeah, process. I think that's probably right. Well, it would have been a very different calculation at that point, like inherently. So it's, mm. not, it's not a mere convenience or a mere double standard. I think it's a very different situation and a very different yes, act to do that. Um, I, I think where we're heading is there's been a lot of free speech argumentation about this. And is that even the right lens to view what happened here. But can I tell you what's interesting about that, though, Willie, is that so much of the free speech argument, except here in Australia, which has really been quite chest-beating, I've been surprised how chest-beating the free speech argument here has been. Elsewhere, it's almost framed in terms of a vague disquiet. There's absolute condemnation for what the president or for the former president did and said. But then there's a kind of vague, squishy, squeamish, but I'm really not sure I like private companies having this kind of power over which, political which is, leaders. Which is an important conversation to have, but you're jumping ahead again. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I don't know, maybe I'm making too much of this. I just think I disagree with your factual assertion that Trump is somehow less regulated than other people on Twitter because of his political position and it meant that what he said constituted political speech and therefore was more thorny to regulate. I think there's an argument that he was more regulated than other people on Twitter. I mean, he was the source of the whole fact-checking function that Twitter decided to unleash and it seemed to apply yes, only to him for, for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but Willie, that's also because the way that Donald Trump's tweets reached as many people as they did was because the tweets themselves became news items, which that, meant that they transcended fine. All that's fine, platforms. but it still means that he was more regulated. If, yeah, you, if but, you want to argue well, that that was no. justified, I'm actually very open to that argument. But now, I see, don't think go you can back say and, he was less regulated. Go back and read reports about what he said, for instance, about Mexican immigration or about what he said immediately following or immediately in the lead up to the so-called Muslim ban. I mean, I, I, there were things that were said that simply would not have been allowed from other if I'd uh, said those things on Twitter. If I'd said those things on Twitter, nothing happens to me. You disagree? Mm, yeah. What happens to me? Because of your public stature. Oh, all right. Take someone who doesn't have public stature. No, let's... Nothing let's, happens. I, that's what I'm yeah, saying. I, 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 I don't this, agree. I, I think I, this idea that agree. he was given latitude, I think, underestimates just how wild the space of Twitter really is. Anyway. Uh, yes, no, I, no. Uh, there, I, there I agree. But I think, I think in many respects he was a kind of limit case. And the democratic consequences of taking any serious action on the part of the social media companies and the extent to which Trump's own power and the power of attendant lawmakers, it just it, it made the consequences of dealing with presidential fallout too great to comprehend. And therefore, they had to wait 
for the moment in which A, the democratic process was quote unquote over, B, the president's power was more or less curtailed, and C, the risk of overt violence was so present, was so imminent, and so foreseeable that it ticked all of the boxes that probably had been ticked in various ways earlier, even if not simply in the United States, and forced them to a position of action. I guess the issue is there's no legal objection to what these private companies did. There's no constitutional argument against what these private companies did. There is only an ethical argument. And I guess our question here is, and this brings us essentially to minefield territory, was it ethical for the social media companies to do what they did to Donald Trump and what might be the objections against him? I'm going to give you 15 seconds of thinking music and then I want you to answer that question for me. Okay? Are you ready? serious? Yeah. Okay. All right. This is your thinking music. This is the minefield. Uh, You can listen to the show on RN. I have to explain this because there are new times going on. So you can listen at 2 p.m. on Thursdays, which you may be doing right now. You can also catch us at 10 a.m. on Sundays, which has not changed. um, And you might be doing that now. Um, If you're listening on the podcast, that will all be irrelevant unless you want to find us on the radio, in which case those are the times to do so. Um, You can listen anytime you like on the ABC Listen app. You can also subscribe to the minefield as a podcast on whatever platform you prefer. Um, What is changing this year is that there is no extra content on the podcast because the radio show goes for the full hour. So that's going to be it. Everyone will get the same thing and we hope you enjoy all equally. Now, Scott, that that was your thinking music. We do have a guest who's going to come and sort us out in a second as Mm. is traditional in the minefield. But do you Mm. have an answer to your own question? Is there an ethical objection? Yeah. Do you have an ethical objection? No, I do not. Why not? Asking this before we bring the guest in. Well, you can throw to the guest if you want, but why not? Look, um, uh, believe it or not, it's not a harm-based argument. Okay. Uh, well, sorry, it is in fact a harm-based argument, but it's on the basis of a much greater, much more expanded concept of harm. Um, I don't accept the "this is the privatization of the public square" argument because I think as soon as cities got bigger as Aristotle put it, than a single town crier or a single herald could reach everyone by means of his or her voice. As soon as you exceed a group of people with a population such as you need mediated communication, you're no, you no longer have a public sphere. You, it's already privatized, which means it's already mediated to some extent. Um, privatized uh, and mediated I, aren't the same thing. No, they're not, but they are mutually implicated. In other words, I don't think social media is the only game in town when it comes to democratic or public deliberation. Uh, I do think there is something democratically fundamentally corrupt and corrupting about the over-reliance on social media. Uh, and, and I simply don't think, for instance, that there is a legitimate free speech argument for the kind of overtly deceptive uh, public communication on the part of powerful leaders that we've been seeing over the last six years, let's say. Yeah. I don't think there's a legitimate free speech argument, and I do not think there's a legitimate free speech argument uh, for words that either give license or overtly incite uh, acts of anti-democratic violence. I simply do not think that there is an ethical argument that is stronger than any one of those objections. Okay. And so your argument is harm-based to the extent that you say this is incitement? Uh, not just incitement, but I would also want to give almost equal moral consideration to the corrosive effect that overt deception plays in the task of okay. democratic cultivation. Okay. 
The incitement point's an important one because that does shift it away from being a free speech argument immediately, doesn't it? Because it does. every free speech argument has an exception. Well, not even an exception. It says the ideals of free speech do not apply where you are talking about an incitement to violence. Hmm. So if that's how you characterise what Donald Trump did, then the free speech principles simply don't apply and so there's no point having that conversation. And that's before you get to the privatisation element of it and whether that's a right. private company. So I think that's an important distinction to draw. We'll see how persuasive that is to our guests, shall we? <laughs> Let's. There's something else wonderful about this show. There are all sorts of new things about this show. Well, we have never had a back-to-back guest before. Uh, but we do in a way this week. Catherine Gelber is the head of the School of Political Science and International Studies and professor of politics and public policy at the University of Queensland. Catherine, the last time you were with us on the minefield was technically July last year when you joined us to talk about cancel culture and whether cancel culture represented a threat to free speech. It was such a good show and it was such a wonderful conversation that we actually scheduled that as the last of our summer programs. <laughs> so I, I know this is crazy. The last our guests heard, our listeners heard from you was last week. I don't know if you remember, but towards the end of that program, we began to talk about the nature of harm, the limits of harm, and the extendability of the criteria of harm in our dealings with others and in the way that speech works. And we said that we were going to have to have you back on the show to talk simply about the nature of harm. And, for, and here you are to talk about <laughs> precisely that. So welcome back to the minefield. Thank you, Scott. That's very generous. And it's lovely to be here. I find, so, that, I find that we deliver our promises best when we do so by accident, Scott. This is completely <laughs> by accident. We had no idea this is what we we're going to do as our first show. I think it's wonderful. Um, Catherine, let's just begin where Waleed and I just were, which is, I mean, do you agree that there is no legal or constitutional objection to private companies taking action in terms of their own developed, maybe not quite so clearly developed or developing terms of service, but that the only real consideration here that we need to take into account as to whether or not the social media companies should have done what they did, namely to ban or permanently or semi-permanently or indefinitely suspend Trump from their platforms, really is an ethical argument. Can, can we begin there? Do you believe that that's right or are there legal considerations here that we haven't factored in? I think that drawing bright distinctions between those categories is virtually impossible to do, mm -hmm. uh, especially in this instance. The social media platforms have to operate within the law, within the jurisdictions where they have users. And in every liberal democracy, to my knowledge, the incitement of violence and the incitement of crimes is a criminal offence in and of itself. And so, therefore, uh, the particular element of the content standards that the platforms used to ban Trump by saying uh, this is incitement of violence, we have a very real fear of ongoing incitement of further violence towards the inauguration and after the inauguration of President Biden. Uh, those community standards don't emerge out of nowhere. They're not invented by the companies. They're put together through a combination of law and uh, and the information that they garner through their community networks and through consulting with experts and so on on what should and shouldn't be the appropriate limits to free speech. So the, in this particular instance, because we're dealing with incitement to violence, I do think there is um, a legal issue. It's not an objection to what they did. Quite to the contrary, the legal issue is further support for the action that they took. Can I just ask you there, though, because from my understanding of the category, the definition of incitement, that there needs to be intent on the part of the person doing the inciting 
for his or her language to have the direct or the immediate effect of violence being perpetrated against the intended object of that speech. The dimension of intention is important, I believe, in the criminal definition of incitement. Is that right? Well, I think that might depend on the jurisdiction a little bit. So in the United States, the incitement of imminent lawless action is not protected by the First Amendment. And my I'm not a total expert in incitement law, um, but my understanding of that is that while uh, the intent could be a part of that conversation and a part of uh, assessing the impact of that speech, it's not 100% determinative. Other things are important. The context is important. Mm. He made that speech out walking distance from the Capitol Hill building. He pointed to the Capitol Hill building and told his supporters to go there. This was an angry mob that had for months, well, mob is an interesting term, but this Mm. is an angry group of people that for months and months, if not the entirety of his presidency, had been told that the numbers were fudged. They had been directly told that the election was stolen and they believed it. The context is more important in this instance, the context in which he made the comments. He didn't say the exact words, go to the Capitol Hill building and storm it, but he said go up the road. He said fight. He said "We've this election's been stolen, we have to fight and get it back. We have to be strong. I'll come with you, he said, and then, of course, he didn't. So the context, I think, is very, very important to determining whether it was incitement or not. And I, it, in my view as is the view of the people who support the second impeachment process, there's more than enough evidence to sustain a charge of incitement Mm. in this case. So, Catherine, as I hear you describe that, the question that immediately pops into my mind is how specific does the incitement need to be? Um, What's the specific... Incitement to what, I guess, is my question. Yeah. Incitement to violence? Was there a specific incitement to violence Well, there was a specific incitement to go and I don't think he used the word pressure, but he did name lawmakers, the loyal, he called them the brave Republicans on our side. Yeah. And he did mention certain who were not going to do what we hope that they do and to go make your voice heard and to use sort of, uh, uh, it's not by weakness, but with strength that we take this back. I believe he used the word fight. I believe he used the word strength. Um, But those words are used all the time. They are. Mm. That's right. That's right. That's why you can't rely on vocabulary to determine whether something's incitement or not. Okay, let me me ask it this way. Maybe there are some small exceptions to that, but certainly not in this instance. But let me ask it this way. Had there not been a riot at the Capitol, (laughs) would you have said, oh, wow, they haven't fulfilled what Trump was asking? In, in other words, is Trump truly inciting this? Or yeah, well, I, is this merely an outgrowth of something that he said that isn't necessarily what he was saying? I think, so obviously there's a point at which the, the tables turn. There's a, there's, a, there's a line. There's a line. So he spent four years telling his uh, followers that the media lies, that you can't believe anything, that you can only believe what he puts in his Twitter feed, that the numbers were, he still claimed right to the end of his presidency that even the numbers in the election that he won in 2016 were wrong and falsified Mm. and that Democrats were colluding with election officials all over the country to falsify results. So the incitement bit, the lead up was well, well and truly more than four years. 
Um, and so there is a point at which the line is crossed. There is a point at which it goes from political debate, you know, albeit laden with lies, uh, misleading, deceptive, disinformation-based uh, debate that disparages experts, that discounts knowledge, that says, I know more than anybody else. And then you get to a point where he just takes it that one step further. So if there had been not, it's really hard, isn't it, to measure what the counter the counter example? What would have had the counterfactual? What would have happened if there'd been no riot at the Capitol? I think that there's still a chance he could have been charged mm. with incitement, but it's unlikely it would have happened. Mm, that's right. I just can wonder, I, can I, can I, sorry, Scott, can I just... Yeah, please. Let me, an alternative example that I'm just making up. A politician who over years and years and years runs a dif- disinformation campaign on climate change. Climate change isn't real. Um, this whole thing is a hoax, the media is misleading you, blah, blah, blah. Then as climate change-related legislation starts going through Congress or Parliament or whatever the political system might call it, says to a whole lot of people whose jobs are potentially threatened by that climate action, um, it's time to fight for our jobs. Hmm. Then those people storm said building. Have they incited yeah, probably. So John Stuart Mill said it in the 19th century. What Protected speech is writing an article in the newspaper saying corn dealers are robbing the poor and making them starve and this is outrageous and we have to do something about these corn dealers who are just making yep. profits while people are starving. But what is not protected is inciting an angry mob outside the house of that same corn dealer to take physical action but the, about but that. But that's my point. Has he? So, well, in in my view, he has. I guess in the end, if the Department of Justice ever decides whether to actually charge him with incitement after the impeachment proceedings are over, we may decide we may discover, um, and a court will have to make a determination. But yes, I think it's clear. So, Scott, is but this what you're attempting to get around by saying we don't need to have an argument about whether it constitutes incitement per se? The level of disinformation is sufficient to justify Twitter's silencing. Well, 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 yes, but I think I want to be very, very specific about this because there's something that we're missing in our determination to try to pin down incitement as closely as we possibly can. I guess, well, in your hypothetical scenario, I don't think we need to fight for our jobs. I don't think that would be incitement per se unless there is a direction, unless there is an object of the fighting that is nominated, unless there are people or persons or offices or even buildings that are specifically. But can I just say, Catherine and Waleed, I mean, this is not our topic. This should be a topic further on. There is a very serious, I think, moral objection to be made and democratic objection to be made to the prominence of violent terminology in the way that we talk about nonviolent democratic processes, whether when when a leader is being deposed, talking about it in terms of a coup or the killing or the assassination of a, or killing fields or we can't kill the prime minister or I mean, this this language, I think, is becoming unbelievably. It was always problematic, but I think in times like this, it is unbelievably problematic. And I think we should do everything we can to try to stamp that out of our vernacular. But there's there's something that we're missing here. Uh, Facebook and Twitter's further decision to take very serious action against Donald Trump was off the back of his reiteration in the following two days of the election having been stolen. So it wasn't that there were further acts of incitement. It wasn't even simply that he praised the protesters or the mob or however everyone referred to them. It's that he 
furthered that particular narrative that the election was stolen, that it was taken from us. And I think what we're really missing here is that what I think, Catherine, you referred to before as the disinformation campaign. What this really was, was a system of overt mendacity, of deliberate deceit, which had the intention and the effect of suspending the usual rules of democratic life and business, which meant that there was then, as Soren Kierkegaard would say, there was a higher ethical obligation yes. upon the protesters to take exceptional, you would even have to say almost divine or even prophetic action against the quote-unquote seat of law, which of course is illegitimate because the deceit, the act of stealing the election means that the rule of law has been suspended. And what now needs to happen is for a very particular ethical action, ethical in quotation marks in Kierkegaard's sense, to take place. So I think it's, it's not just the fact that there was incitement. It was the context in which that incitement landed, which was the rule of law no longer pertains here. There is a higher obligation. And I think that is where this kind of act of perpetrating deliberate lies in order to shape a narrative in which people see you as an authentic moral agent, namely the former president, as an authentic moral agent, communicate with them authentically, morally, and giving them a moral task to do. Yes. And, and this is what lying does. This is why Kant condemned it. You take the person at their word and as communicating with you sincerely, all the while what's going on here is something like you know, sort of, you know, elevating forms of lawlessness into the highest law. That I think is what we're missing from the conversation but as a whole. doesn't that require somebody to make that judgment that a lie has been told? So yes, so that's that's the very difficult thing. If you just say it's because of lies, then you've got really difficult problems because it's almost impossible to regulate public discourse to get rid of lying and lying as a feature of public discourse. But what we have here is not just lying per se, it's the use of the democratic norms in order to undermine democracy. So the one of the one of the if not the central hallmark of democracy is a peaceful transfer of power, a peaceful opposition that you have a permanent opposition party that's capable of taking government at any time. And we can't interpret free speech to permit it to be a license to destroy democracy. So it wasn't just that he told lies, but of course he did. And there are lots of fact checks around that tell us that he told, I don't know, 30,000 lies in, during the course of his presidency. Uh, but so it's not just that he told lies, although he did. It's that the end game is the subversion, the destruction of democratic norms, democratic institutions. They didn't. They weren't just told to go to the Capitol building. They were told to go to the Capitol building to stop the certification of the election results. That, I think, is the overt mendacity, the deceit that you're talking about that is so morally objectionable and so dangerous in a democracy. So we can't, there's a, there, we can't interpret free speech to allow people to use free speech to destroy democracy. And we have known this for a very long time. You only need to look at the Weimar Republic. Mm. We know that there have to be limits and there always are limits, but this libertarian discourse, this idea that free speech should be completely free because it's just an expression of someone's opinion and some of the reactions of some of the Australian parliamentarians to what happened with banning Donald Trump completely misses that point and suggests that free speech should be entirely free, otherwise it's not free speech at all. And that is just wrong, in my opinion.
You're listening to The Mindfield. Uh, we have a new time slot, by the way, on RN, um, and you might find that we're with you longer than we ever have been before. Um, what you can do is head to our program guide at abc.net.au forward slash RN. If you search for The Mindfield, you'll get all the details there about when we are on the radio machine. But if you want to listen at your convenience, you can. The ABC Listen app uh, is the way to do that. You can also subscribe to our podcast, and of course, you can listen anytime you like. Well, Lee Daly is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Catherine Gelber is our guest for this first edition of the Minefield for 2021. She's from the University of Queensland. And the question I was um, sort of meandering towards, Catherine, is uh, the, the principles that you've laid out there, I think they're very lucid. My concern is what happens if they become applied to all manner of movements of civil disobedience? Yes. Um, sorry. So what we, we actually do need to make some decisions hmm. here. So you do need to decide which components of discourse are destructive to discourse, to democracy, to democratic institutions, and which components of discourse are designed to promote democracy, to promote participation, to bring down um, long-standing systemic inequalities and marginalisations that prevent all people from being able to partic participate equally. And this is where the kind of individual kind of blindness of liberalism really comes into, into contact with um, democratic norms. It is, we do need to be able to differentiate. And the, the, the idea of free speech traditionally has been widely understood to mean that anybody should be able to express their opinion and that we can all have a, we can all have a disagreement about views and different people will hold different views and they all need to be heard. And what, I've, what in my work I try to say is until you get to, until you cross the line into harm, and when you cross the line into harm, you can regulate it. But it's true that some communities' speech or the targets of some speech is harmful. Sorry, some speech is harmful to some targets in ways that other speech isn't. So hate speech, for example, is harmful to disadvantaged, marginalised communities who are structurally disadvantaged in the context in which the hate speech occurs. And so that speech is harmful to their participation in democracy. But other speech, let's say, for example, I don't know, gen generic criticism of politicians, even if, it's even if it's vigorous and perhaps even a bit insulting, doesn't harm them in the same way. So you do have to have a way of differentiating between which speech, in this case, um, you, would, you would allow to happen, even if it's vigorous and even if it's a bit uncomfortable and even if it makes people unhappy or they even have their feelings hurt, and which speech you're going to say crosses the line into harm. Right. Something this, really... this, oh, sorry, Scott. I, I, was, oh, just no, gonna, I, was, I was just going to say, I feel, I feel where I get nervous is relying yeah. on harm to regulate this because I feel yeah. like it's so slippery and slow, so... I mean, among the most harmful speech we have had in our democracies this century, probably, has been all of the speech that advocated the Iraq war. I mean, it killed hmm. hundreds of thousands of people on false pretexts, and there were, if not outright lies told, then mm -hmm. there were serious exaggerations. At the same time, it was one of the definitive political debates of the first part of, of our century. What does the harm principle say about regulating that? Or do we, do we not reckon with the harm because the people that are harmed are non-citizens? But just before you answer, Catherine, I think one of the connections between what Walid's just raised and what we were talking about before is the idea of, if you like, categorical harm. I mean, the way, so, and by categorical harm, I mean 
the targeting or the characterization of a group of people as that group of people, group of people as belonging to that particular group of people. And one of the things that harms that harmful speech does, just to use some of the language we were using before, is to then elevate or make licit a kind of lawlessness against that group of people by creating the conditions in which they can be harmed and with impunity. And you'd have to say, I mean, Waleed, we've talked about this in the past. You'd have to say that one of the necessary precursors to both Iraq and and Afghanistan was the characterization of Iraq and Iraqis and of Afghanistan and of Afghanis uh, as a particular group of people who are either inherently or innately a particular way or potentially a particular way. And therefore, certain forms of, if you like, international lawlessness can be done and be done with impunity. It seems to me that there is a direct connection, if you like, between that kind of international harm and the sort of domestic harm through the identification of categories of people that are then, if you like, placed beyond the protection of democracy's care. Yes, uh, that is how some some speech operates. So it's the the example that Waleed that you raised, Waleed, is very interesting and challenging to understand. But uh, I think that the the real harms of the Iraq War, and I'm absolutely uh, agree. I absolutely agree that there there were significant harms involved during the war and in the immediate aftermath of the war. But they're ongoing today. There have been significant harms to many, many millions of people uh, caused by that. But that was caused by the actual war, arguably as opposed to the advocacy of the war, except in the sense that Scott was just talking about. So the advocacy of the war contributed to views that Iraqis and Afghanis, respectively, um, were not fully deserving of, of human of humane treatment and that it was okay to uh, bomb their countries in ways that that inevitably would involve harm to civilians. But it was the actual war. So the, the war, the advocacy of the war was more done by politicians who knew they wanted to promulgate those wars and were looking for ways to justify it. Now, for while I was an opponent of those wars, the parliamentarians who took us into those wars did so after having been duly elected and with majorities that in Parliament that supported those war actions. I'm not saying that I uh, that I agreed, yeah, I didn't right. agree, but they were fully duly elected parliamentarians who were authorised to take us into a war and to authorise military action. And that military action did and still does cause a lot of harm, but I, I would put that in a different category. It wasn't the advocacy of the Iraq war that did that harm. It was the war. It was the policy. It was the concrete policy that caused that harm. And of course, we can talk forever about the harms of war and whether a war is ever justified and ever actually ends up in, um, or seldom ends up with um, a better a better outcome. I would put that in a different category from the advocacy of genocide, for example, hmm which relies on the kind of categorisation that Scott was just talking about. It creates the conditions to harm a particularly vulnerable group of people. I'm not sure I see all of those distinctions. So the idea that it was the war that did harm, not the advocacy of it. Well, what is the advocacy if not the analogue to incitement? It's not the incitement that did harm, it's the violence that was occasioned on on the Capitol Hill that did harm. I mean, you can play the same trick. 
Yeah, except that the incitement to what happened at the Capitol Hill was illegal. It was incitement to commit a, tri- a crime. The advocacy of the Iraq war was done by poli- duly elected politicians um, exercising oh, well. their... Okay, um, that, that then becomes a question of which law you want to apply because there are right. clear <laughs> arguments yeah. about yeah. the illegality yeah. of that law. I, the, yes, my, my, my point here isn't to try to, you know, ban speech in favour of the Iraq war. Or I, hmm. I, I think what I'm saying is sometimes I think we too easily rely on some of these ideas or these categories to help us out. So I, I, yeah. I, I find harm less and less useful as a way of deciding what to regulate and what not to as I go through life. And maybe that's just me not understanding it very well or and I'll change my mind in a couple of years or whatever. But I'd, I find it's less and less helpful, partly because everything is thrown in the basket of harm now. Hmm. Um, well, I do think that, that that is an issue of everything being thrown into the basket of harm and of not having sufficient differentiation between, on the one hand, for example, people feeling insulted or offended and having their feelings hurt, and on the other hand, um, actionable harm. So I, I, I'm with you on that. It's just that if we don't use a generic concept like harm, then in each individual instance we have to have a separate argument. So around the incitement of violence, there's a particular reason uh, yeah. not to allow that speech around doxing, around revenge porn, around hate speech, around the advocacy of genocide. Uh, it means we have to have a different argument for each one and that's not necessarily a bad thing and certainly in legal terms we do have different arguments yes. for each one. Uh, but in terms of the public debate and f- of getting people to understand that free speech ought to have limits and that those limits are valid and justified and where do we as human beings generically agree that we can draw the line, harm is very useful in that conversation. Can I just can I take a step back to where we were a moment ago? You both raised the issue of civil disobedience. One of the things that does strike me is that civil disobedience or social movements... You might even want to call them illegal but pro-democratic social movements. In other words, social movements that object to a particular law as it currently stands, but for the sake of some, say, higher democratic principle. This idea of evoking a higher law over and against the actually existing, say, corrupt law, or one might even want to say sort of unethical law, let's maybe put it that way. This is the stuff of civil disobedience. You would even say, I mean, Catherine, you've written extraordinarily well, I think, about ag-gag legislation and about why you think that that violates certain free speech principles. And yet the things that people in favor of very strong, very robust animal rights do are strictly speaking illegal. And yet they do that in favor of a higher law. I guess it strikes me that one of the great differentiations, say, between the civil rights movements associated with Martin Luther King Jr. and the kind of... um, the regnant black power movement after Martin Luther King Jr.'s death is the extent to which one movement had a degree, what King called a vision of beloved community, a kind of telos, a kind of democratic telos in mind in his forms of civic civil disobedience. Whereas the other, I do think, both committed but also advocated certain forms of what have to be called categorical violence. These might be forms of violence that are historically understandable, if not justifiable, but there's no future democratic vision or telos that is in mind. Is it better not to talk in terms of higher laws, in terms of democratic 
rhetoric and speech? Are we stuck with it? Do we have any kind of criteria for differentiating when we can, when we cannot speak in a particular way, act in a particular way that might violate laws as they stand? So obviously laws don't always get it right. Laws can be wrong. I think for me, the key criterion in justifiable uh, civil disobedience that morally justifiable civil disobedience is that it's peaceful. So it's a peaceful form of protest that doesn't harm anybody, doesn't harm property, doesn't harm people. Uh, And in that case, if there's a moral argument that the law is not right and that uh, that a certain type of civil disobedience activity is necessary to bring awareness to the wrongness of that law and to try and change it. And of course, laws change all the time. Public policy changes all the time. These things are not set in stone, although incitement to violence is kind of set in stone. But many of them um, are, are subject to change. So the peaceful advocacy of policy change, including occasionally by pushing the boundaries of the law, and the boundaries of laws like trespass are not always 100% clear. These things do get different, differentially interpreted in courts and in prosecutions, uh, but typically in the examples you were talking of, the animal rights activists, even where prosecutions are formally speaking successful, the pu- punishment is either non-existent or incredibly easy in recognition of the fact that the civil disobedience, while it did cross the line into, little, into illegal activity, nevertheless was peaceful, did not harm anyone and sought to bring information to the public sphere that needs to be brought to the public sphere and that could not be brought to the public mm. sphere in any other way. So, yeah, we need to have the right to peacefully challenge laws that we consider not to be right, including the massive uh, protests that were held against the wars that Walid was talking about, the Iraq war and the, and the war in Afghanistan. There were massive, massive legal uh, civil disobedience, partially civilly disobedient uh, protests against those wars. Mm. You know what I want, Scott? I want a podcast extra. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> and we can't do that because we are out of time, uh, Catherine, and we have no room to extend this year. We do not have the discretion. Um, thank you so much for being our guest. It's been wonderful. Oh, it's been you. wonderful. Thank you for having me. 2022, we're going to have a 90-minute show. I'm going to make that prediction. <laughs> <laughs> With a three-hour podcast extra. Um, Catherine Gilbert, Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Queensland, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, the first for 2021. Hope you enjoyed. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.